So let me show you, um, and this is where I'll go to the slides. Let me show you what a typical approval pathway would look like against what we're now in, which is Operation Warp Speed. It's worth knowing that uh, DOD is involved in this, and so you get names like Operation Warp Speed. Um, and let me show you how, uh, I'll show you in two different slides the, the differences, and they're significant. We're talking about differences in time of six to seven years. Um, but let me share my screen here, and this should, and my hope is you can all see um, these, this slide here. So this is um, the top of this slide here, um, with my cursor you can see, is what a traditional paradigm of, of a vaccine approval would look like. And then down here, um, this isn't actually warp speed, but it, it is what a paradigm should look like in a pandemic under an EUA scenario. And there are two major differences. One is you'll see, whoops, I just moved my own slide. Um, one is you'll see these are, all of these different phases are much longer. Sorry about that, spam. Um, and the other thing is very important to watch is this up here, which is the stages of manufacturing that are occurring at the same time as the drug approval process is going on. So typical approval, um, the first thing is you have to target your, uh, your, what your product is going to be. Uh, in a vaccine context, typically your target is twofold. One is what disease are you trying to use and uh, look at, and then the second piece is what is your platform for that? And this is an area where vaccine um, development has changed astronomically. Uh, it used to be you had a question of a live virus or a, a dead virus as your platform. We now have um, tens of different platforms, uh, and we'll talk about very briefly the two major ones in contention right now. But even in those 46, there are probably 30 different platforms that we're talking about for uh, the target. Then you start with very short First phase one, usually these used to be on um, healthy volunteers, but in the context of a vaccine during a pandemic, we're all the healthy volunteers. So you can actually, through phase one, uh, go quite quickly through typically a small number of individuals, 10 to 15. And that's a dose escalation phase where you're testing exactly how this vaccine is working and your endpoints are safety only. Then you move into phase two, which involves more volunteers. Um, and there too, you're still focusing mostly on safety, but you're bringing in some efficacy. And then in phase three, you have lots of volunteers. And over um, a period in a traditional framework of several years, you might get several thousand volunteers in that context. And then you get to a drug approval. 
Now, when we look at Operation Warp Speed or a pandemic scenario, everything is squished much more tightly. So we're moving faster. Your phase one is gonna include aspects of phase two. You're gonna move very quickly from phase two into phase three. Um, uh, as an example, the Moderna vaccine right now is in phase three. It currently has 30,000 volunteers uh, in, involved. Half of them getting placebo, half are getting um, the active vaccine. Um, now, the other piece I said to pay attention to is this piece here, the manufacturing uh, piece, the early manufacturing and scale up and then large scale manufacturing. In a typical uh, setting where, remember, most vaccines are gonna fail in development, you're gonna have at most small scale clinical trial material being developed because you need the material to test your vaccine, but you're not even gonna think of tooling up your um, system so that you can produce this vaccine later on, not to speak of large scale manufacturing. Here, all of this is actually taking place right now. Um, and we'll talk about that. It's actually created uh, big distribution gaps. If you actually think about what's going on um, with, uh, with COVID testing, we have the same problems going on the distribution for the vaccine and likely gonna be the big problem getting it out. Now, I just wanna show the next slide here um, gives you um, another view of the same process I was just talking about but is better at seeing what kind of time frame I'm talking about. A typical vaccine process is 73 months to uh, completion. Operation warp speed is projected, that may be an optimistic projection, but we'll see, um, at 14 months to completion. Um, so that's a, and as you can see here, the same thing I was talking about, instead of having the manufacturing pieces coming at the end, they are already in place as we move through. The other thing that's very, very different with um, Operation Warp Speed is the money. No one makes money by producing vaccines. Um, the reason you do it is to have your portfolio do some good things or you're getting funding from uh, places like the Gates Foundation to do it but this is not your typical for-profit situation. Um, now what's happened here is the government has come in and the government has actually um, started funding targeted vaccines significantly. And when I say significant, it's significant to me. We're talking uh, one to $2 billion uh, contracts with the main uh, contenders. Uh, so they're already getting one to $2 billion. Um, they, there are also lots of contracts with um, the materials like the vials that are gonna be important later on that are going on separate from the actual producer of the vaccine so that those things will be in place. Um, so Operation Warp Speed is a huge, um, no matter what, take all the politics out of it, it should get us to um, something near 14 months to completion. Um, and so when you hear Fauci, for example, talk about the possibility of having a vaccine to an EUA 
at the end of the year, that's not a crazy um, projection. What may be a crazier projection is getting it to um, getting it to the place where you can distribute it to the American population. That's well, I'll talk about just for a moment towards the end. Um, so Operation Warp Speed required the government to choose just a few candidates to give several billion dollars to. Um, and this slide here shows you who those are. Um, one is uh, being developed by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. Uh, also, the Institute of India is involved, but the two main partners are Oxford and AstraZeneca. You probably heard about this because they had um, a volunteer who had a very bad reaction, and so there was some question of whether that was related to the vaccine or not. It doesn't seem to be, but people are watching it pretty carefully. Uh, then Moderna has gotten a lot of news. Um, it's probably the furthest along at this point, um, and that's the one that's got right now a phase three uh, trial going on with 30,000 volunteers. The one that many people think may be the first uh, to an EUA is actually produced by Pfizer. Um, it's still in a phase two, three stage, but um, it's doing well. A lot of people have been impressed with the platform um, and we'll see. But this is a race between these three and it's a race that may not have a single winner. Um, it is possible, and this is actually one of the tricky pieces of this, that you may see EUAs for all three of these coming in by second quarter 2021. Um, and that's going to raise a real issue of how you think about choosing between them. Now, I should also point out that of those 46, any of the others might be better than the ones we're talking about here. Um, especially there are many that are in very early stages. So we're still at the animal testing and, and stages like that. So if you look at it that way, um, it's, it's, it's not clear. Now let's talk about one of the questions you asked me was efficacy. And if you talk about efficacy, that becomes um, an interesting question of what the standard FDA is requiring. Most people, when they hear something is effective, what they think is this will work for me. But if you've taken my FDA class, you know that's not true. Um, the standard that FDA has um, set in June is that the, the vaccine that will get an EUA through Operation Warp Speed must show 50% efficacy. And that means 50% against a placebo. To give you a, a little bit of a comparison, most flu vaccines, and don't not get a flu vaccine when I tell you this, um, most flu vaccines on a given year have efficacy between 19 and 60%. Um, that's because flu, uh, the flu virus mutates so much that there are actually so many different strains of the flu virus out there that what through the manufacturing process, you actually have to guess many months before what the most prevalent strains are gonna be. If you guess wrong, you get a 19% um, efficacy rate. If you guess well, 
you get a 60% efficacy rate. We're still talking about much less than what people think efficacy means. Now, as another comparison, and it's worth and important, I think, for this discussion that we're going to have here, is that for measles and mumps and tetanus and all the things you got when you were a kid, the efficacy rate there is between 85 and 95 percent. So significantly better than what we're talking about when we talk about flu. And COVID is unfortunately more likely to be more like flu than it is to be, at least now, down the road, we may get to a stage where it's more like mumps and, and measles. But the, that the best we can really hope for is about a 50% efficacy rate. Um, so last things to think about, I mentioned distribution is gonna be a problem. Uh, some of these vaccines have to be kept at, at something like 70 below zero. Um, that makes it kind of hard to transport them and store them. Uh, very few people have the capacity to do that. Um, you may have heard that we had uh, a shortage of the various requirements to make tests. We also have, believe it or not, a global glass shortage. Uh, without the right kind of vials, you can't actually uh, produce the vaccine. And so this is the government, the US government in this instance is actually trying to get in front of all the private sector pieces. There are contracts out there, but they haven't gotten in front and there is international competition for glass right now. That's gonna play a role. Last piece is you use it like a TV syringe for these vaccines. There's a lot of evidence that we have um, a shortage of those. So last piece is after the distribution, that mess, part of it's figuring out what the, before we even get to mandatory, what should the priorities, who should get it? There was a National Academy report fairly recently that outlined priorities. Um, I suggest you actually look at that and how that will work. Um, and that's gonna play a role as we start thinking about what mandates should look like. Um, one of the more interesting questions we can talk about in discussion is never mind a government mandate, but what happens if your employer mandates that you get this? Um, we're also seeing a lot of evidence that some companies are actually trying to outbid the government by establishing um, contracts with the likely candidates so that they can get in front of the government and get their workers uh, vaccinated first. Um, this is gonna be, well, not like it's, it hasn't been a free for all already. So it's gonna be really interesting. Um, and sadly, 2021 has the capability of looking just as interesting as 2020. And I'll leave it at that. What, what a cheery note to end on, Professor. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much I'll for that. It. And we're gonna turn it over to Professor Shepard to talk about ethics and her recent discussion that she was quoted for in the news. So Professor Shepard, it's, it's all to you. Uh, and also Drew Calamaro is on here. I know that Drew and Professor Shepard have been working really closely on a paper that Drew is writing about this topic. So I've asked Drew to, you know, chime in, what, you know, where, sure. where needed, because he, he's become quite an expert on this uh, over the yeah. last few months. Yes, Drew, Drew has really um, dived into this recently. 
Um, so I was also going to talk about Savannah. I, was, I think I was also assigned to talk about the general constitutional law, not the religious exemption so much potentially, uh, or the religious issues. But um, so I guess I just wanted to start with with saying that the Supreme Court, and, and this isn't, you know, this isn't a, a, a big thing to 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 say. I mean, if you know much about. Uh, health law, um, you would know about the Jacobson v. Massachusetts case from 1905. So if you read any articles or hear any news little clips about, about mandatory vaccines, that's the case everybody's going to cite. Um, and that was in 1905, and the Supreme Court upheld um, the state of Massachusetts law that required uh, vaccination during the midst of a smallpox outbreak. Um, and, um, you know, basically um, said that the state has broad police powers and, and uh, to protect the public health and safety um, and, um, and was quite deferential uh, with respect to, you know, didn't ask too many questions about the science, um, was really kind of quite deferential with respect to the, the review that it did. Um, the... This is before, of course, the, you know, stricter uh, scrutiny that you might find um, with respect to individual liberties. Um, and so you, you do have to ask, well, what about today, you know, to the extent that the previous review really just focused on, was it not, ar not arbitrary? Was it reasonable? Would it today kind of stand up? Uh, so, um, uh, We'll hold that thought for just a minute. Um, uh, the, the important thing to also note about the case, though, is that uh, medical exemptions, you know, it was acknowledged that if Jacobson was, a, it was acknowledged that he was not able to prove that he had a medical condition that made it unsafe for him to get the vaccine. So um, implicitly saying that you would have to, you could not force a vaccine on someone for whom it would be unsafe to have the vaccine. Um, the, there have been since then in 1922, the Supreme Court um, had another case. This was about mandatory school vaccines, uh, which actually have been in place uh, in many states since the 1800s. Um, and um, the Supreme Court also upheld that mandatory vaccination for public and private schools um, um, even though there wasn't a public health emergency. It wasn't like the situation um, in Jacobson when you had a smallpox outbreak. Um, so to get back to where we would be today with respect to Jacobson, if you had a challenge today, I mean, I don't think there would be quite the level of deference that you had with respect to um, the, the local health authorities um, discretion with respect to the science, um, th but there'd be a lot. I mean, there might not be as much because it was pretty much hands off, but, but, um, but there would still be a lot of deference. Um, and then the fact that um, he, what Jacobson, if he didn't get vaccinated, he was fined. In other words, this is, and this is something that we see a lot in these kinds of cases with respect to um, uh, mandatory or forced medical treatment is in general, um, 
we consider the body uh, intrusions of the body. So anathema and a violation of really core liberties, um, uh, that that's, that's what you, to me, that's an interesting question. I mean, could we actually force people to have a vaccine? And, you know, that wasn't a case, not that I necessarily, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about what would get us to that point where a state would actually force that rather than making a vaccine conditional on something else. Or if you don't have a vaccine, you have to be isolated or quarantined. Or if you don't have a vaccine, you have to be fined, right? So some consequence from not having a vaccine, but that's different from actually forcing a vaccine on you. Um, and with respect to that, you know, we've got since 1905, you know, many more cases, um, federal, state, um, both supporting mandatory vaccines, federal, state courts supporting mandatory vaccines, but also upholding people's liberty interests and bodily integrity interests, um, you know, with respect to forced medical treatment. Um, so, you know, you have the Cruzan case, uh, which um, acknowledged, although not directly, that there is a right to refuse. There may be that prior decisions uh, could include uh, a right to um, refuse medical treatment, even if it were life-saving. Um, and we've got number of appellate decisions that uh, say that you cannot even to save the life of a, of a, a fetus slash baby, right, right at term, you can't force a C-section, right, on a pregnant woman, that that is her choice. So you've got these, you know, cases um, where you've got the liberty interests and the bodily integrity interests with roots in common law, you know, um, with roots in common law battery claims, um, that that you can't do that. Um, that that or if you you'd have to have an extremely compelling reason to do that. Okay. Now, so that I think would inform how how a court would look at this kind of a case today. So an example, um, those were cases that dealt with a person's own health and for their benefit, or then the benefit then of this baby. When you're starting to think about the public health though, right, the state's interests are even broader, right? So, so, it, so it's a more interesting conflict or, or it's not exactly answered by those cases because of the really strong interests that the state has in protecting the public's health. So there's an interesting case that's, that I have in my case book from 1993. It's just a state court case about um, a man with tuberculosis who um, would not stay in his hospital room during treatment. He had um, multi-resistant tuberculosis. And, and uh, so the, the city of Newark wanted to confine him to his hospital room and also force him to have the treatment, you know, uh, it was intramuscular, in fact, not even intravenous, but this pretty painful treatment. And this court just using, um, and it's a pretty well-written opinion, drawing on analysis from, you know, Jacobson on down. So this is in a 1993 case, um, you know, says that they would order the his isolation and, and confinement in the hospital, but was not willing to order that he be directly 
subjected to the treatment. Of course, he couldn't get well <laughs> until he, you know, took the treatment. And so, you know, you can ask how much liberty he really did have. But, but, but I think that kind of hesitancy to actually, you know, intrude the body, um, I think that is more where we are today than in 1905. So, so that's one thing I would think about. So um, to just to, you'd also have, so, so you have the constitutional law, you have to think about, well, what is the, um, is it required in the sense of like, what are the consequences if you don't do it, right? Um, um, and so the authority for that, in addition to what is allowed in the constitution is gonna be your state laws. So after the 2001, um, after 9-11, 2001, and the anthrax attacks and concerns about bioterrorism, um, a lot of states passed um, a, a law based on the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, which was um, uh, developed by a, a group of um, experts in the field, legal experts. Um, but each state had a, had a different um, you know, it's a model statute, so they can take what, what parts they want. Um, and, um, and this was because until then, until 2001, most states didn't have some broad statute that kind of laid out what they could do in a public health emergency. They'd have a TB statute or they'd have a smallpox statute, right? So when some particular disease came up, then they'd pass a statute for that. So this is trying to be comprehensive. Um, and so you'd have to look at that. Florida, for example, apparently, um, I haven't looked at it directly, so I was reading about it, um, has, is, would, would be quite broad in, in allowing the state to require vaccinations. Other states backed away from that, so you'd have to look at that. And when, and when the states did pass those laws, you know, some critics of, of the model state um, Emergency Health Powers Act, like George Annis and Ken Wing, they, they wrote, you know, they were kind of surprised at how intrusive these laws could be. I mean, how much power they were giving states to declare a public health emergency and then to do pretty draconian things um, with respect to isolation and quarantine. And instead of having individualized hearings, you'd have, you could have group hearings. And so there are questions about privacy, questions about due process. Um, and the argument that they were making at that time, um, which I found pretty convincing, um, was that uh, was if we had a situation where we had a public health emergency, um, what we needed to be concerned about was giving access to people, that most people would want care. What we had to worry about was access. Um, what we had to worry about if we wanted to quarantine people was to make sure that they would have their, they'd have their job would be secure for them, right? And that they would be able to bring in income and pay their bills and pay their rent. And that, and that, that we could rely on a lot of voluntary, right? Compliance or uptake of these public health measures, whether it's a vaccine or testing or isolation or quarantine um, or medical treatment, antivirals, um, because uh, people would want to do that in their best interests. Um, 
So that was kind of, I, I was in much agreement with them, you know, in those years after 2001 and when these acts were passed, I thought, and, and I still, a part of me still um, agrees with that. And then a part of me thinks, well, I'm not sure. I, you know, with respect to the, how big the anti-vaxxer movement has gotten and, um, and now the anti-masks movement. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think I maybe had too rosy a, a view of how people would uh, want to, that, that the question, the, the harder question was gonna be questions of access. I know those are gonna still be questions, right? I mean, and we have to solve the access problem. Um, but I also worry that people would not voluntarily um, in order to uh, protect others, um, and, you know, take public health measures, you know, because of what we've seen with respect to masks and the politicalization of these issues. Um, so I'm sure if we did have some kind of mandatory vaccine, no matter what the consequence was, what, what was conditioned upon it, right? Or what the consequence or fine or what, however they decided to implement it was, I'm sure it will be challenged. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm gonna leave the religious issue to Micah. Sure. And before we switch over, Drew, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but since, well, you did ask. I, I'd much rather, I'd much rather listen to Professor Schwartz. All right. Well, if you have any thoughts at the end, uh, and if anybody wants to talk to Drew about his paper, it's very, very fascinating. So, so you, know, I, you asked me earlier about, a, about slides, and I didn't think I would have any, but maybe I have one that's worth sharing. Sure, uh, I can make you a co-host so that you can that And I'll share. just share this. Um, okay, give it a go now. It should work. Okay, let's, um, let's do this. How's that? Can you see what I'm, yeah. see the slide? Yep. Um, okay, so this is just a, a state rundown, the most recent I could find. Um, I had one from 2019 that was a little bit better shaded out, but this one is this one will do. Um, Maine had a had a law on a ballot um, in 2019-2020, so it's the it's a sort of recent conversion to no exemptions. But you'll see that most states have a religious exemption for vaccinations, um, and some have. Uh, an exemption that's broader that includes personal belief. Um, you know, states with outbreaks in recent years, like New York, um, have changed their laws to eliminate religious exemptions. So New York did it, Maine did it. Um, some states for a long time haven't had such exemptions. Uh, West Virginia, Mississippi are interesting cases. Um, California, which has faced uh, an outbreak, uh, they, they had a uh, problem with measles, like in New York, um, has no exemption. Um, some states have considered repealing their religious exemptions. New Jersey came pretty close, but it didn't um, quite manage to do it. Let me show you one more slide. I gave a talk uh, in New Jersey, uh, I guess, maybe about a year ago. It seems like 10 years ago. Um, but what they, you know, the reason why they're considering or why they were considering a repeal is because they had an explosion in the number of religious exemptions claimed. This is roughly contemporaneous, these, this uh, rise in the red line here with a measles outbreak that's happening, or that was happening in New Jersey and New York. And as, you know, as this outbreak is going on, they're seeing increases in 
demands for religious exemptions. Um, and you know, in the midst of a in the midst of an outbreak, let alone a pandemic, I'll stop sharing this. Um, you know, you, you you can see why states want to begin to reconsider whether their exemption policies make sense. I mean, I suspect that if there had been an even broader outbreak uh, in New Jersey, more like the one that happened in New York, I mean, it was beginning to spill out. Um, I, I suspect the political pressure on New Jersey would have been so strong that that effort would have succeeded. I mean, at the end of the day, this is true now too, parents want to send their children to school uh, and, you know, measles is dangerous and extremely contagious. Uh, and so the, the pressure there was, uh, was intense. Um, and still not quite successful, but I think that has more to do with the extent of the outbreak than, um, than anything else. Um, okay, so let me step back for a second um, and, um, and agree with Professor Shepard, who pointed out that this law in the public health context is still governed by Jacobson. Um, I think that's still true, even though, again, there, again, though there have been changes in uh, our constitutional recognition of due process rights to reject medical care. And it's true that that law has, uh, has developed beyond where it was in Jacobson. Um, and yet the Supreme Court, um, I, there's no, I think there's no question that Jacobson is still an important precedent. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts in one of the COVID cases, South Bay over the summer, relied upon it. Uh, in his explanation for the denial of cert in that case. Um, I, I suspect it would have broader effects uh, under pandemic conditions if a vaccination requirement were litigated. I will say this on top of, uh, on top of pointing out um, the durability of Jacobson, no court to my knowledge has ever relied on a religious freedom uh, protection, whether whether constitutional or um, statutory, no federal court has relied on a constitutional or statutory um, provision that generally protects uh, religious freedom to issue a religious exemption where it wasn't already authorized by state law as an exemption from some mandatory vaccination requirement. That is, federal courts are not in the business of creating vaccination exemptions. If they might exist under state law, according to the map I showed you, they're, they're prevalent, but courts don't tend to create them. In fact, I don't actually know, and I haven't done an exhaustive search of this, I don't know of any state high court that has authorized a vaccination exemption under a general religious uh, freedom statute or constitutional provision, like a state RIFRA. You know, there's a federal law which, which provides um, protection of religious freedom with respect to federal laws, that's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which many of you may know, um, especially from the litigation over contraception and Hobby Lobby. Many states have such provisions, either as a matter of statute or constitutional law at the state level. And again, I, I don't know of any court that has interpreted one of those provisions or statutes to issue an exemption where it wasn't otherwise specifically authorized statutorily. It would be very surprising to see a federal judge and for that matter, I think a state judge do that. There was one, I can think of one case uh, in New York where a state court um, required a school to admit a child uh, who, um, who was exercising a religious exemption where the school 
um, didn't want to recognize uh, that exemption. There was some controversy in New York. You had this kind of interesting situation where the school was announcing a religious freedom claim to prevent children from coming in if they weren't vaccinated. And the parents were exercising a religious exemption on behalf of their child and you had these dueling religious exemptions. And ultimately the courts did what I think most, most of us would expect to be sensible, which is if there are religious claims on both sides, you're gonna side with the vaccination requirement. Um, and, and that's where things ended up ultimately. Um, that was before New York just eliminated its, its vaccination exemptions. That followed shortly thereafter. I mean, the, those cases and the elimination are maybe, uh, they're not even a year apart. In other words, uh, you know, this is really a question of, for the political process. And I think, uh, I think the determinants of how that process go um, have mostly to do with how serious the public risk is. And I think um, in most states, I'd expect state legislators to be sensitive to that risk, um, not necessarily because uh, they don't care about religious freedom. I think they, many, many do, um, but because there will be such intense pressure from, uh, from the public, especially from parents who want to send their children to safe schools. And, and I think that pressure uh, largely overwhelms still the anti-vax movement. Although in states where there are these kinds of uh, religious and uh, personal belief exemptions, you can see them exploited by those who are opposed on any grounds to, um, to vaccination requirements. And in New York and New Jersey, we had some tests of that, and it didn't go very well until those uh, until those exemptions were constrained or eliminated. I, I think, as a matter of constitutional law, there's still no question that schools could condition um, uh, attendance on vaccination. I, I don't see that being disturbed anytime soon. The a mandate by states to get vaccinated under their uh, police power. You know, I think it's a slightly more complicated question today, but under pandemic circumstances, I actually don't think it's that complicated as a matter of constitutional law. Um, but you know, but we have a we have a Supreme Court that is the most solicitous of religious exemptions that we have probably ever had, and so maybe I'm speaking too soon. Uh, we'll see. I think I think the chief is very cautious about this sort of thing, and the COVID cases should give us some encouragement about that from the summer. But we also have a nomination uh, or are about to have a nomination that might mean that he's no longer the median voter on the court. Uh, and so it, it will turn, it may turn uh, these kinds of questions on who that median voter, who the 5-4 swing turns out to be. And right now, we don't know that. Um, so there's, there's some uncertainty. Yeah. All right, I'm going to stop there. I think um, I, I'm happy to to take questions or to open a discussion or however you want to proceed. Sure, Drew, I see see your hand is raised. Um, and if people want to ask questions, if you could just raise the, use the hand raise function. If you click on participants, um, you can raise your hand on there. Um, and I will call on people after Drew. Um, I have a question for Professor Schwartzman. Um, have, have you read Brown v. Stone from Mississippi um, at all? Or have you, do you know, do you know if it, it was the state Supreme Court case uh, from Mississippi? No I, no, I haven't read that decision. Okay. Oh, well, all it is, in, all it is is an equal protection argument for getting rid of religious exemptions. So like you're protecting, you know, the people who are immunocompromised. What do you think about that getting developed for, uh, 
further, I guess. Is that like a viable argument, do you think? Or I'll have to take a look at the at the Mississippi case. I don't know when it was issued. It's not it's not something I've seen. Um, there's a background question about whether uh, a state could grant a religious exemption uh, without granting an exception for people who have strong philosophical or personal commitments. Um, my own view is that that's impermissible under the Establishment Clause. And there's some case law that points in that direction as a matter of uh, statutory law. You have to go back to the Vietnam draft protest cases for this, uh, Seeger and Welsh are those cases. But as a matter of constitutional law, there's some contrary uh, language in Yoder v. Wisconsin, which is the case granting uh, an exemption from education requirements in Wisconsin to, to the Amish. Um, and there's some language in a more recent case called Cutter versus Wilkinson, which says that exemptions don't have to proceed in quote lockstep with benefits to uh, those who aren't religious. There was a case decided um, just within the last couple of weeks in the Seventh Circuit in which a COVID related case in which uh, Diane Wood writing for the Seventh Circuit said that the state could authorize uh, social gatherings um, to larger capacities for churches, but not for political rallies, right? Like this looks like a problem on that kind of equal protection theory that I think you're mentioning or a free speech theory, which says that content discrimination is impermissible. I think that decision in the seventh is on very shaky grounds on, on First Amendment speech uh, bases, but uh, you know, th again, this court, what, if you ask me to predict what five justices on this court would do, I think they're prepared to grant religious exemptions that don't extend to those who don't have religious claims. Um, I've spent a lot of time arguing against that view, um, both normatively and doctrinally, but just as a predictive matter, where, where do I think the Supreme Court is? Yeah, I think it's highly protective of religious accommodations and not, that, not as interested and extending those to people who've got um, non-religious claims. What counts as a religion might be an interesting question here. That's the kind of question that emerges when you get this division. Um, one last thought about this. Um, if you look at the contraception mandate as a kind of interesting comparison, when the Trump administration granted exemptions there, it granted two exemptions, one for those with religious objections and one for those with moral and ethical objections. Here, I, I suspect some states won't want to do that because it, ex it greatly expands the possibility of anti-vax you know, responses and exercises of those exemptions. Um, and so there's pressure to allow religious exemptions and only religious exemptions for that reason, uh, to narrow the category of exemptions. You're kind of, you know, there's a, there's a hard line to walk there. Sorry, that was a longer answer than you might have. But no, that was a that was a fantastic answer. Thank you so much. Oh, Professor Shepard, you have yeah. Can I follow up with that? Yeah, please do. So, um, do you think if if there is, do do you think just this is a political question, not a legal question or a constitutional question? Do you think? that there, if um, states do issue a vaccine mandate of some kind, right? Um, and and I, I, I'm tending to think, you know, less about children right now, although 
you know, uh, there's so much precedent for that. I, you know, I think it's kind of interesting to think about an adult, you know, mandate um, uh, like we had uh, in Jacobson. But do you think that politically there would be pressure uh, to have a religious exemption in order to get public kind of buy-in that this is something that the, the state should do. I mean, I have felt like in Virginia that the governor has been really careful, um, at least originally, I haven't kept up with it quite as much in the last few weeks, but to say, um, you know, you have, you have to do this, but you know, the enforcement's really like not clear, right? Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a trying to get kind of public buy-in. And um, so, so do you think, do you think states that otherwise wouldn't want to have a religious exemption, so perhaps they don't have one like for measles, mumps, and rubella for schools or whatever, would have one for COVID? I don't know the answer to that question. It's a fascinating question. And I, you know, there are, in other countries, I know there have been, you know, experiments with different types of enforcement mechanisms where they're not mandates, but you provide some kinds of incentives or, you know, public campaigns. And it is, it's true that one way um, to, to try to uh, help package regulations is to include uh, religious exemptions. You see this uh, in states that are thinking about same-sex marriage, providing exemptions for, you know, social service organizations and others as a way to try to create some compromise. Um, I think, you know, I, I think you have the same kind of problem that from the slide that I showed you out of New Jersey, which is if those religious exemptions are exploited uh, to, and, and the numbers of them are, you know, greatly expand, they begin to defeat the to defeat the public health mission. Um, if the numbers are small, right? If you only have a really small contingent uh, of religious objectors, that's one thing. But if you've got lots of anti-vaxxers who use religious exemptions as uh, a vehicle for getting out from underneath the law, you know, you have a kind of sincerity issue. And I don't know; some of them may have religious objections, but to the extent that they're really motivated by medical concerns and not by religious objections. And the only avenue for them is through a religious exemption, then you can see how that goes. We had similar kinds of issues with conscientious objectors for conscription in the 60s. Uh, I, you know, I, I think a lot depends on, on what kind of response you end up getting uh, to, to, the, to the exemption. If it's huge, you, you, I think you've got pressure to eliminate it. Um, and you may see both efforts. I think that's what we've seen in some states. You initially grant a religious exemption, and then when it turns out that tens of thousands of people want to exercise it and undermine the health policy, then the state's effectively forced to get rid of it. And maybe in some states we'll see that pattern play out. That's just a, that's just conjecture on my part. I, you know. Savannah Riley wants it. I was muted, Professor Riley. Go ahead. So. I guess what I would say on all of this, if you're talking about political buy-in, um, I don't think you get there with a 50% efficacy rate and unknown safety profile at all. Um, I don't think we're gonna get there for several years. Uh, we may get there if we continue to be in lockdown situations for th for more than another year, but you know, I don't think, I, I'm a really pro-vaccine person, 
And right now, you'd have to convince me to take any of the candidate vaccines. Um, we just don't know enough about them. And if I'm a, if you then mandate it, you are gonna, frankly, you might destroy our measles and even more than what we have in terms of childhood vaccines and completely throw our vaccine program uh, up for grabs. Um, so I think we're a long way from Jacobson. And Jacobson, the science was, there's a 1905 opinion, uh, FDA opinion, McNulty, which actually says, well, science is just opinion. I think we're further down the, the track on what science tells us now. And I just don't see uh, courts or legislatures um, saying, oh, we're just gonna trust, <laughs> trust this vaccine and the state's decision to work. I think you're gonna see a lot of pushback on that. Um, what worries me is if we push it too fast, that pushback is gonna come unreasonably when it is reasonable to get people to take the vaccine later on down the, down the pipe. I, I'm frankly glad I'm not uh, rolling this process out. Um, I guess I, there's an election, so who knows what could happen, um, but it's going to be, you're going to have to do it with the delicacy of a dance to get it right, um, or we're going to have even bigger problems. I see a hand up from Kimmy beckler -Aval. I'll let you have the, the last word, Kimmy. Thanks. I know it's six o'clock, but really interesting conversation. Um, just a quick question about, I think it was Professor Shepard who raised the idea of employers mandating vaccines, and I'm wondering if the legal doctrine changes when you're outside the school realm? Do states have like broader police powers when it comes to mandatory school vaccines for children versus in a broader public or private sense? So she's not here, but I can answer it. Um, so not as an issue of state law, because I couldn't tell you the state law piece, but OSHA has allowed employers to require flu vaccinations. So for example, at UVA, the health system requires, if you're in the health system, to you can be required to get a flu vaccination. Um, now, flu has low safety, so low efficacy rates, but we also know it's got very good safety profiles. So I don't know that OSHA would do that with a brand new COVID vaccine. But I think that OSHA, in the right context for an employer, um, when you think about Let's imagine we get to a point with better safety and efficacy. Um, you get to a point a meat packer um, requires its employees to be vaccinated. I think OSHA would back them up um, because they can't work except being in a close context. Uh, it then ties into all sorts of issues with the ADA and what's a reasonable accommodation and can you do your work within uh, within a reasonable accommodation, and every one of those cases will be fact-specific. Thank you. Drew, you want to add to me? Uh, not to you. No, I would never. <laughs> yeah. I just have one thing. Uh, I, everybody, uh, everybody who's been under this uh, new paradigm of, uh, uh, from yesterday, I guess, was Jim Ryan's announcement, and uh, this, this has been going on since 1802. I, I look at the, all of this happening through this lens, which is like back in 1802 in Mississippi territory, there's a smallpox outbreak and the governor 
uh, said, if anybody goes out with smallpox and there was like 1400 people in this old, this, this settlement, and no one else around for 300 miles. So like, this was like a self-defense mechanism, but he said, anybody who goes out with smallpox, you're going to get fined a hundred dollars. And that's like $2,100 today. So, <laughs> so whatever is happening to us, it's not as draconian as that. And, uh, you recommend it? yeah, what's that you recommend $2,100 fines? <laughs> no, I don't have that kind of money. So <laughs> I think that's the point then drew, you would stay inside, wouldn't you? Right. Um, so I, oh, Denny, you've got one question. Uh, Professor Riley and Schwartzman, thank you guys for sticking around with us for a few minutes. This is such a fascinating topic. I'm sure we'll, we've got lots of questions. So Denny, go ahead. Okay, sorry, I, I didn't mean to attack. No, not moment. at all. <laughs> but um, I was just curious, and maybe you've covered this. I um, had to miss part of it. Um, a lot of the mandatory vaccines seems to be all or nothing, or sorry, all, basically. Um, have they thought about sort of implementing the minimum, a number of people that need to be vaccinated and, and target that instead? How would, how would you do it? You're thinking about like a lottery? Um, or just, well, I, I think at least from uh, a lot of my friends, a lot of people would just volunteer. And okay. so you get a good chunk of people that already volunteer. And I think there are sort of medical minimums, uh, at least statistic models. Right, seventy-five percent of people need to be vaccinated to prevent uh, large spreads of a certain disease. Sixty percent either have zero positive or or a vaccine. Right. Well, sixty percent though, without some sort of additional coercion, <laughs> at least in the short term. Motivation. I mean, and that additional motivation may be such that you know you get to go to UVA. Right, that right. may be tough. Exactly. Uh, but sort of leads to my follow-up question, which is related, which is um, this also seems like a sort of what a problem that Calabresi brought up in his model of sort of free riders, right? People obviously benefit from having a society being vaccinated. Um, so maybe, I mean, the fines seem like a sort of liability protection, right? If you don't do it, you get fined. So... I mean, can you combine the two to sort of target maximum there, fairness? So, so when I'm feeling snarky, there's no question that that anti vaxxers are free riders, um, in the sense that they they know that um, there's herd immunity, or they think there's herd immunity, and they don't actually, frankly, think about it in this equation. What they say is the measles isn't a problem because they don't see any measles. Um, of course, they don't see any measles because of vaccinations, and then it, it ends up in this whole loop. But they are, in fact, free riders, whether they think of, they are not consciously free riders, but they are free riders. Um, you know, I, I see pediatricians, the way they deal with this is they fire their patients. Um, and that works, actually. Um, so it's another way of pushing things without a, a government mandate. I'd just like to add to that in terms of uh, it. And Professor Riley, you know this, and uh, it depends on the disease, right? So like measles, you have to get over that 95% threshold, right? And every, I think every 5% less that 
people who are vaccinated for the measles, you get a three, you get three times the amount of measles cases. So like, it's like exponential, it would seem like in terms of the amount, of, you know, every, I don't know. I'm not a mathematician. I'm a lawyer here. So that's what I know. So um, that depends on. So that's why you got to get rid of medical uh, religious exemptions for something like the measles. But then you have pertussis where the the herd immunity rates way less or any one of these other disease. I think measles really is probably the big one that you have to worry about in terms of herd immunity. And then the rest of the stuff, uh, if you really just push in terms of communication, public health wise, then you can get above herd immunity. You don't need uh, a mandate. So, but yeah, that's my opinion. Well, since I like to always end on a happy note, there are other viruses coming down the pipe that could kill us better yeah. than any of these. So remember that. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, <laughs> thank you so much um, to everybody who joined um, and asked questions. And thank you to Professor Riley and Schwartzman and Professor Shepard had to drop off early for another meeting, busy lady. Um, but, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys being here and for taking all of our questions. And it's been really insightful. <laughs>